So today we are continuing our, our way through the, the book of Luke. Uh, if you have a, a Bible with you or there are a few Bibles that are, should be on a chair somewhere near you, and you, uh, you can turn to, to Luke chapter 3. And what we're doing today is actually moving to a, a new section of, of Luke. Uh, one thing that when I had to do ordination exams in the Presbyterian Church, part of it is you have to do outlines for books of the Bible. And you have to technically be able to outline most of the books, and they'll ask you, so outline this book. And it's really useful to even say, okay, what's the broader flow of a, of a book? What section am I in? Not just in, say, a chapter, but the flow of the entire thing. And and today we're, we're at a really important transition in the book of Luke, because the first two chapters are really just preparation and the birth of, of Jesus. So we saw the birth of John the Baptist, the birth of Jesus, uh, the announcement of that birth, the presentation of Jesus at the temple, and then just one story of Jesus at age 12. And then here in chapter 3, we're, we're moving to the um, early ministry of Jesus, him entering into his public ministry. And, and so we'll, we'll be in this section through, through chapter 4. So again, if you, if you have your Bible, turn to, to Luke uh, chapter 3, um, and I'll begin reading in verse 1. In the fifth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... Pontius Pilate being governor of Judah, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of uh, Iteria, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become a level ways, shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he said to them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. And the tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not exhort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. 
and be content with your wages. This is the, the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you for the ministry of John the Baptist. Lord, even as we read about his birth a couple chapters ago, uh, Lord, we, we look at this and we wonder how this applies to us, how this can make a difference to our needs and struggles here today. And so we pray that you would apply it by your spirit for your glory. Amen. Now, I think we, we live in a society that really values what is new above everything else. <laughs> uh, we, we always want the, the latest social media platform. One goes out of fashion, the next one comes, you, you ditch the old one. Uh, we, we want the, the newest technological device, whether it's a, a new cell phone, um, you know, a few people, like Benjamin holds on to his, his older phone. <laughs> uh, but, you know, people are always, okay, want the newer, the newer phone. We think that, that newer is, is better. But as we come to this, this passage today, the one that I was reading a moment ago, we see this ministry of John the Baptist. And in some ways, you can think of John as the, the last Old Testament prophet. And you say, well, this is the New Testament, isn't it? And, and yes, it is, but I mean, he was born slightly before the the birth of Jesus, and he's really the culmination of just the prophetic ministry that we see in the Old Testament of preparing the way for the Messiah, calling people to repentance. But then we think, well, is this just irrelevant and outdated for us here today? I mean, we, we barely care about what was popular five years ago. And, and so what about you know, a ministry of a Judean prophet 2,000 years ago, what is the, the relevance of that, especially for our real needs and concerns, the things that we're facing here today? And I really do believe, though, that John the Baptist and the ministry that we read about here is profoundly relevant and important for each one of us. And it, it's True that what was popular in the 90s maybe isn't always popular, but what is popular here, or maybe what is unpopular here, um, is what is crucial for us to understand and to, to live and to even know what Christianity and our, and our faith is all about. You might say, well, that's kind of a, a bold claim that something that, that's so old, seems so distant, is, is so important. So really what I want to do is just walk straight through this passage and we'll, we'll look at the, the, the relevance of this that shines through for each one of us. And, and in a way, we, this, is, this is a passage that's easy to divide into three sections. And we'll look at each of these sections individually. And so we can say that, that John's ministry is relevant for us here uh, because of his context. That we see that verse 1 to 2. And then because of his mission, that's verse 3 to 6. And then, because of his preaching, verse 7 to 14. And so as we go through this, I would just encourage you to, to leave your, your Bible open, and you can see as it, as it unfolds. And so let's start then with this first section here, that is, John's ministry is relevant because of his context. And, and that's what you see in, in verse 1. Look there again in your Bible. It says, in, in the fifth year of the reign of Tiberius, Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region 
of Ituria um, and Trachonitis and Licinius, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of the Lord came to, the son, to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, even as I'm reading that, it's a mouthful to read. <laughs> even to be honest, last night I was looking up, okay, how do I pronounce this? Ituria, Trachonitis, and, and even I may even be mispronouncing them to a point. So you think, okay, isn't this making the opposite point? <laughs> the, I mean, that if, if these are names that we even struggle to pronounce, it's hard to, to read, then how can that possibly be something that is, is relevant for people here today? But I think that, that we start to see its importance uh, if we, we just look a little bit closer at, at what Luke is really saying. That what he is doing is basically painting these concentric circles of the context for John's ministry. And so the, the outer circle is the, the Roman Empire. So basically the known world at the time, and he's, he's saying that the person who's ruling is Tiberius Caesar. And so for somebody reading this at the time, immediately they're thinking, okay, oppressive Roman authority, corrupt Roman emperors who were, were violent and brutal and cared about power and, and exerting their authority over others. And then it moves from the, that circle to then the, the circle of just the, the region of Judea. It mentions Pontius Pilate. Of course, we know him. He was complicit in the crucifixion of Jesus. Um, also, not a great guy. And then we read of Herod and his brother Philip. So these are the, the children of Herod the Great, we know from the Christmas story. And uh, these are also bad guys. They come from a messed up family. Their father murdered one of their brothers. Uh, they were known for corruption, for ungodliness. And so then you move from that region to the very heart of Jewish religion at this point, to the high priest. And it says that the two men were sharing the role of high priest, Annas and Caiaphas. And you think, well, okay, well, maybe here the Lord instituted high priests to, to minister in the temple. This is where we'll see godliness. This is where we'll see something that's very different from what we see in the region and the, in the world. But then, again, the people reading this would know the name Caiaphas. This is the person who was also complicit in the crucifixion of Jesus. This is somebody who is in bed with the Roman authority, who is a false teacher, who is, is really perverting the truth of Old Testament religion in the very heart of the temple and the holy place. And so this is a, is a really messed up context that John is beginning his ministry as the word of the Lord comes. And I think that when you look at it then through that lens, you start to see, okay, I can see a little bit of commonality with the context of, of our world today. If you, if you look at the, the broader known world and just the, the mess that you see on the news or, or you look at the, the conflict and, and problems, whether it's in our country, you look at the state of even religion and churches that, that, that should be proclaiming Christ that are, are filled with, whether it's hypocrisy or false teaching that are um, not staying true to, to Scripture. And so uh, there's this, this commonality of, of the brokenness of the world that we see. But yet we see that God is also faithful. God is working. We can't say, oh, if only we lived in past times because things are worse they've ever been. No, they were bad then, and, and the Lord is working. So there's actually hope and, and comfort for us 
in the midst of where we are in, in the midst of our life. So really that's the, the first hint of the, the relevance of this that we see, that it's this context. But then let's move to the second section in our text. So uh, the ministry of John the Baptist is relevant because of his mission. Look at verse 3. He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, or of the Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain high and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of our God. And so again, as I read that, you think, okay, is this making the opposite point? <laughs> Maybe showing the, the irrelevance of John's ministry for today. Because we see here talk of Old Testament prophecy written thousands of years ago. It's using religious words like baptism and repentance and forgiveness and sin and, and salvation. And I imagine that even if we, we went around this room and had each person write down the definitions of these words on cards, that might even get different answers. So how does this show the, the importance and the relevance of, of John's ministry for today? Well, really, I think that it, it shines through in the, the central mission of John the Baptist in Israel. In verse 3, it says that he came proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so I think that if John were today and he had a website, this would be under the About Us tab or, or the Vision, Mission, Values tab. So, so what is the ministry of, of John the Baptist about? He would say, well, I'm here to proclaim a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's my mission. That's why I've come out. But then we say, well, what does that even, even mean? Well, really, this, this baptism is a ceremonial washing it's not quite the same thing as we think of as Christian baptism. Um, it's, it's related, but not exactly the same. But it's really actually in line with ceremonial baptism and washing that was practiced by Old Testament believers. And so what would happen is if, if somebody who was a Gentile, a non-Jew, wanted to enter into the covenant community, so say a, a pagan Greek professed faith in Yahweh, the God of Israel, he or she would still be considered ceremonially unclean. And so, you know, for the, for the man, they would have to go through circumcision, and then, again, they would be unclean. So they would have to go through a ceremonial washing to be brought into the, the covenant people and to have this, this sense of, of being clean. But what was really then unique about John here is he, he's doing this the ceremonial washing, but he's not just calling non-Jews and saying, oh, it's the people out there in the world who are the ones who are unclean and have to be washed in order to come into the covenant community. But he's addressing the people who are actually in the covenant community. He's addressing the, the children of Israel themselves and saying, no, you have to go through the same washing as an unclean Gentile in order to be Forgiven, it has then to order to have this baptism that then symbolizes repentance and the repentance that leads to forgiveness of sins being being reconciled to God. And so, for John, then this isn't something for 
just religious people. It's not something just for irreligious people, but it's for every single person that, that no one can say, oh, I don't need it. I'm, I'm too good for this. Uh, but it is the baptism of repentance of sin to prepare the way for the Messiah. And this is really then why Luke quotes Isaiah. So he quotes this Old Testament prophet at length. Um, and the image is it's really kind of amazing that it, it talks about the, the mountains and the hills being brought low. It talks about the, the valleys being filled, the bumpy places being made straight, and it's creating this, this super highway, this, this straight road for the Messiah to come. And, and just that, that language, I mean, if you've ever driven through the state of Kansas, not all of Kansas, but parts of Kansas where everything is just flat as far as the eye can see, and the road does not turn until it hits the, the horizon, um, but it's very different from roads that you see in mountains. You go to the mountains, things are wrapping up and around and, and down and, and side to side, and there's not a straight, direct way to get anywhere. Um, but... This past week, I was reading a book about the, the history of uranium ore, which is very interesting and used for nuclear weapons. And apparently after the uh, attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, some engineers and uh, business people were trying to figure out if there could be constructive uses for nuclear weapons. I mean, you think about you know, nuclear power or something like that. But they, what they thought about was trying to use nuclear weapons to basically take out mountains in certain areas to you know, bring the mountain down, fill the valley so that they could build a you know, railroad or a road through on, on level ground. And, and apparently they did some feasibility um, studies of whether it was possible and they opted not to do it, thankfully. <laughs> um, but you think of that, just that image of just nuclear explosions bringing down mountains, filling valleys, creating a, a straight road. Uh, and that is the very picture that we see from Isaiah, that this, this voice comes in, in the wilderness. And the voice is basically the, the, the nuclear explosion that, that levels a path and straightens all the highways for the Messiah to come. And that, that nuclear explosion that prepares the way is repentance. It's this, this turning from sin to God, this, this preparation for the Messiah. And really, then, it's no different for us here today that you, know, you think of John's baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, preparing the way for the, for the Messiah. It wasn't for religious or just for irreligious people, for everyone. The same thing today, that the, the call of Scripture to repentance, to, to turning to Christ, is something for, for every single person, that no one is exempted from it. Which is also why in Acts chapter 2, as the, the church was spreading throughout the, the Roman Empire, the, the crowds asked the Apostle Peter how they can be saved. How do they enter into salvation? And this is the answer Peter gives. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And if you listen, it's the, the same formula as John the Baptist. They're saying, you know, what can we do? He says, repent, turn from the path you were on to God. Um, symbolize that entrance into God's people through baptism, through ceremonial washing. And then the goal of it is forgiveness of sins that can only come through Jesus Christ, through faith in, in Christ alone. But then I think you say at this point, all right, so this is something for every single person. 
something that we're called to, religious, irreligious, but what does it actually look like? And this is then where we come to that third and final section of our text, that John's ministry is relevant because of his preaching. And what we see in verse 7 to 14, so for the rest of the the passage that I read, um, is an example of the preaching of John the Baptist. And I think that as Luke is putting this together in writing, he's saying in a sense, okay, we say it's a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, but what does that actually look like on the ground? How did that lead him to, to teach and to preach to the people? And I won't read, read all of the verses. You heard them read a minute ago. But just imagine yourself, use your imagination, and pretend like you are a first century Jew living in Jerusalem, and you hear tell that John the Baptist, this uh, new prophet, is out at the Jordan River. And so you go down to see what it's all about, just to, to see it for yourselves. And so you come, and the crowd is gathered, and you think, okay, maybe he's just going to be a very eloquent speaker, an eloquent preacher. He's going to flatter everyone, tell a few jokes, kind of slowly lead them into his message. But then you're completely shocked by what you see, that he, he doesn't flatten, flatter people, but he, he starts to speak, and he dresses the whole crowd, which includes you, and he says, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Right? Quite a way to, to start a, a, a sermon. I've, I've never started a sermon that way myself. But yeah, this is the preaching of John the Baptist. You, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? And so, again, as a first century Jew who would pride yourself on being part of God's people, you think, whoa, okay, slow down. But then he starts to tell you that you shouldn't think that because you're descended from Abraham that it's going to count for anything, that God can raise up stones, sorry, rather raise up children for, for Abraham from the stones themselves, that a stone is more good to God than an unrepentant member of this covenant community. And then he, he calls people to bear the, the fruit of repentance, not just to say they're sorry once, but to actually live a life that, that flows out of that. And so as then you're, you're watching the, the sermon unfold, people start to go down to the Jordan River for baptism. But you, you notice that it's all of the really bad people who are the ones going down, that, that the, the religious leaders, the people who are influential are holding back. And so you see, say, a, a tax collector going down, and you probably would recognize, okay, that's the guy who swindled me on my taxes last year and took more than um, he should have, so it was hard for me to, to feed my family. And he's going down and repenting. Um, and then he asks John, what should I do to, to live a life of repentance? And John doesn't tell him that he should give up being a tax collector. He just says, don't take more than you should. Um, be, be honest in your, your dealings. And you think, well, that's strange. And then you see other people going down, and you see soldiers going down to the river for baptism. And these are people, again, who are, who are Jews, who have begun to work as basically police officers for the Roman Empire. And you recognize one of them as the person who beat up your, your brother to extort his money earlier. And you think, that guy is repenting? I know he's, he's just a, a thug. Um, and so you begin to, to question, and the soldier says to John, what should I do to live a, a life of repentance? And again, John doesn't say that he should give up being a soldier, that he should stop working for the Romans, but he says, don't extort money from anyone. Be content with your wages. Be faithful in the place where, 
where God has, has placed you. And so as a religious person, then, you, you would leave a little bit confused, maybe a little bit angry, uh, but, but you might leave then that sermon saying, I don't need this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It's not relevant for my life. Now, that, that's just to, to get us imagining what it would be like to be there. But, but that's in some ways the picture that we see even later on in Scripture. Um, in the book of Luke, chapter 7, so a few chapters, we'll, and we'll get here eventually in the book of Luke. Um, but if you want to even turn there, Luke 7, beginning in verse 28. Jesus said, I tell you, among those born of woman, none is greater than John the Baptist. And so Jesus is saying, you want to know the greatest person? It's John the Baptist. Yet, one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And then there's this parenthetical statement from Luke, and it says, when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized. And so, even here then, in the first century at the time, some people would hear the, the preaching of John the Baptist and would say, yes, this call to repentance is, is relevant for my life. I need to, to repent and, and turn to the Lord. But then for others, they thought, no, the, the, this is not relevant. This does not apply to me. But what Luke shows us then there is that it was the people who were considered culturally immoral, the people who were the outcasts of society or the ones who saw their, their need. And it was actually the religious people, the people who thought that they knew the Bible the best, who said, you know, this, is, this isn't something I need. I'm, I'm I'm too good for this. And, and they refused to enter into the waters, which was basically saying that something was wrong, that they needed the same thing that Gentiles needed. It was too humiliating for them. And I think, though, that, that if we're, we're honest, that, that it could even be some of the reactions that we have here today as well. That if John came to modern America and brought this message of a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, I think that, that people would be really offended by what he's saying, and they would be offended on two fronts especially. They would be offended because he's talking about sin and human brokenness and a, and a need for repentance. And he's talking about people as, as vipers who need to turn back to, to God. And, and I was even talking to a friend recently who said that that she's looking for a church that, that doesn't use the word sin. And, and, and she was saying that it, it just destroys people's self-esteem, that it's, it's an outdated term, it's psychologically oppressive, and, and aren't people just basically good? So, so a message like John the Baptist rubs against that and is profoundly offensive. But then also it's not just talking about sin that's offensive, but also the way John talks about judgment. I mean, he, he says that, who told you to flee from the wrath of God? So he's talking about wrath. He says, the, you know, the axe is laid at the foot of the tree. Anyone who does not repent and, and bear fruit is going to be cut off and, and thrown into the fire. And so this is a, he's a hellfire brimstone preacher. You think of, in school, if you read Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, it's not different than 
the message of John the Baptist that we see here. And so again, we think this is offensive, this is narrow-minded, this is not something that's just deeply relevant for our lives. But I think that as, as we, we think more about this, and I definitely understand why people could be uncomfortable with this with talk of sin or talk of, of judgment, but it wasn't just, I guess you could say that it's not just modern people who are offended by talking about sin and talking about the judgment of God. We're, we're not different from the people then, that it was just as offensive to so many of the people who were sitting under John the Baptist's ministry as well. And that's why so many of them rejected his preaching, rejected his ministry. But as we think about ourselves here then, the 19th century pastor, J.C. Ryle, really wisely said, let us, <clears throat> let us beware of being wise above that which is written and more charitable than Scripture itself. Let the language of John the Baptist be deeply engraved in our hearts. And so, yes, the, the language of sin or the language of judgment, it's uncomfortable but this is not just John the Baptist. It's the, the language of Scripture as a whole. And so if we're going to reject that language, in some ways we'll have to then end up rejecting all of the Bible. Uh, because that, that's what we see from Genesis to Revelation is that, that God is, is holy and that he, he doesn't tolerate offense to his, his character. I mean, you see it in the Old Testament, whether it's the, the flood of uh, God that, that was sent so that all life was destroyed but Noah and his family. You see it in the, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. You see it in the destruction of the, the Canaanites or the Israelites going into captivity. Um, it's pervasive throughout the Old Testament, but it's not just the Old Testament. As I said, we, we see the, this language of sin and, and judgment here from John the Baptist, but also this is totally in line with the ministry of Jesus, too. I mean, if you take, say, a weekend and just read through the Gospels, you could read through the Gospels in a weekend, the, the biographies of Jesus, and you just mark the times he talks about wrath or sin or judgment, that, that he talks about it more than I think we sometimes here in modern America would be comfortable with, that this is true to his ministry. And it's not just him, but then that's borne out in the, the letters of the New Testament, of Paul, of, of, of Peter. But then I think, though, some of you might say, okay, maybe that's the teaching of Scripture as a whole, but maybe I just don't like the Bible. <laughs> or some of you might say, okay, I get that this is the teaching of Scripture, but, but maybe it's something that just should not be talked about in the church at all, that we, we don't want to be offensive, we want to be seeker-sensitive, we want to be welcoming to those who are uncomfortable with this language, and so maybe we just... We talk about only positive, encouraging things, and then later talk about this idea of sin and, and judgment. But again, I think that this is one of the great advantages of preaching through books of the Bible section by section, as we do here at Hope, that, that it's not something that, you know, today I just really want to talk about judgment. But when, this thing, when these things come up in Scripture, that our, our desire is to be faithful to the Bible and to, to not stray from what, what he is saying here, believing that what he's given us in his word is actually relevant and this is actually what we need to, to grow and to, to love and, and to, to live lives in the world. 
But then also I think that, that idea of, okay, not talking about it at all, some of it has to do with even our view of what judgment is. Because you can, you can think about the, the imagery of a fiery hotel, <laughs> or, or, or you could say a movie theater. That if you just go into a movie theater and you yell fire, and there's no fire, then you get in big trouble. You've committed a crime, and you're kind of a terrible person you've done, <laughs> right? Not a good thing to do. Um, and it's the same way as you think about the idea of sin or judgment, that if, if somebody just doesn't actually believe that it's true, and they're just saying it to manipulate, then that's a really terrible thing to do. And, and it's true that people have talked about sin and judgment, or, or talked like John the Baptist here in our text in order to manipulate, but not from sincerity. But then if you flip the image a little bit, and you say you're at a movie theater, there is a fire, and you just kind of slip out the back door and you don't say anything, again, that's not a, a loving, kind thing to do. And you, would, you wouldn't say, oh, well, I just don't want to influence, be offensive, I don't want to interrupt people's movie. No, that, that what, what you want to be, be truthful to reality. And, and, and if, if what we see here in Scripture is actually truthful to, to reality, then, then there's, there's a need to, to talk about it. And I think that this is stated really well by a, a pastor named J.C. Ryle. I just mentioned him uh, from the 1800s. And when he's talking about our text today, this is what he says. He said, Well would it be for the Church of Christ if it possessed more plain-speaking ministers, like John the Baptist in these latter days, a morbid dislike of strong language, an excessive fear of giving an offense, a constant flinching from directness of plain speech are unhappily too much the characteristics of the modern Christian pulpit. Uncharitable language is no doubt always to be deprecated, but there's no charity in flattering unconverted people by abstaining from any mention of their vices or implying smooth epithets to damnable sins. And I think that, that, that Ryle is, is right, that, that we should always be charitable, be loving, be kind, be gentle, um, but also learning from John here that, that to be truthful about spiritual reality. And, and really, John's message here and his mission is, is relevant to us here because he is truthful about our need. He is truthful about spiritual condition, and he holds out hope of forgiveness. So just as we wrap up then, I just want to speak then to, to two groups of people that, that might be here today. And so, so the first group would be people who say that, that repentance, that the ministry of John the Baptist um, isn't necessary. It's, it's irrelevant because there, there's no need for repentance. And that could be because you're coming from a religious perspective that says that there's no judgment, God just forgives everyone, there's universal salvation. Or maybe even from an irreligious perspective of saying, well, there's, there's no absolute truth, and so there's no real ultimate right and wrong, so what does it mean to repent? And so if that's where you are, then the Bible definitely says that repentance is necessary. And I think that we see it when we're really honest about our hearts and actually where we are before the Lord. And I heard this image recently, and I thought it was, was helpful of just imagining that our, our life was a DVD. All of our deeds and actions and thoughts and words go on it. 
And so that means our, our best deeds and our worst deeds, our, our best words, our worst words, our best thoughts and our worst thoughts. And then that, that CD or that DVD is broadcast and played out in theaters around the world. And so the first part, people get to see your best thoughts, your best deeds, the best things that you've ever done in your life. And they think, wow, this person's really great. He really definitely does not need a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But then it, it begins playing the second part, which then shows your, your worst deed you've ever done, your worst thoughts, your worst um, actions, the, just everything that you maybe would want to hide or, or not talk about. And then w if people looked at that, would they say, okay, this, this is a really good person, they, but no, we, we would see that no, we, that we don't line up to the holy standard of God, that, that we need a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so that's really the, the first group then, those who say that repentance isn't necessary. But then the, the last group are those who say that, that repentance isn't possible. And I think that there are probably also people here who could be in that category of saying, you know, on a religious side, no, I... I I know that I've done wrong things, but what I've done is too wrong. It's too bad. God can never forgive me. There's no point in repenting because I'm just too far gone. Um, or even just in a cultural way, if we talk about people don't change. Uh, people can never change their direction. You're, you're born this way. This is just who you are. So it's completely and utterly hopeless and repentance is, is pointless. But that is also not the witness of Scripture, that what we see in Scripture is this incredible love and mercy of God, that he actually loved us enough, seeing our sin, seeing the DVD play with the worst things we've done, and yet he, he loved us even while we were sinners, and he sent Jesus to live the perfect life, to die a sacrificial death. And so in, in Christ, then, there, there's no sin that is so small that it couldn't bring the judgment of God. But there's also no sin that is so large that it can't be forgiven if we repent and we, we return to the Lord. And so that's the, the biblical formula is to, to look to our lives, to, to see where, where we fall short, not to just give in to despair or to hypocrisy, but to, to turn to, to Christ, to admit our faults, see our sin counted to him, his righteousness counted to us. Uh, and then we begin this amazing life of, of just new obedience, of, of righteousness, where it's not just the, 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 the kid who you know, kicks his sister, says he's sorry, and then kicks her again. But what John is saying is bear fruit in keeping with repentance, that, that what the Christian life becomes in is this life of repentance, which is why we confess our sins every week in our service, why we, in the Lord's Prayer we say, forgive us our debts, because this is what it is to live and to, to always be coming back to, to Christ and our need for him. And it's really that, that need for Jesus that we see symbolized and sealed so beautifully here in the Lord's Supper. Uh, 